Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome tonight's guest moderator, Chris Hewitt. Hey everyone, thank you for coming. Uh, tonight's guest, Noel Clark, is one of the most prolific and talented filmmakers working in Britain today. He writes, he produces, he directs, he acts, he probably sings and makes a tea as well if we ask him. Uh, his new film, The Anomaly, is a mind-bending, twisty-turny uh, sci-fi thriller. Before we meet Noel Clark, let's take a look at the trailer. In 9 minutes and 47 seconds... Manual shutdown. 2, 1... Ryan Reeves' life will end. And a new one... will begin. So who are you? I don't know. To find the truth... to free your mind. This thing that they've done to me... they could have done it to everyone. You must unlock... the anomaly. Tell me about mind control! Why are you fighting it? You're the one controlling me. Now I know what I need to do. Time's up. Please welcome the director and star of The Anomaly, Noel Clark. Hi guys, girls, hi. <coughs> so Noel, welcome. Uh, what is The Anomaly? Let's start off with a nice and easy one, because this movie is a noodle baker. It's a melon <laughs> twister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how can you explain it in one or two sentences quite easily? Um, well, as you saw from the trailer, well, the trailer explains it, uh, yeah. first and foremost. But as you saw, it, the, the Anomaly is a film about an ex-soldier who wakes up in the back of the van and uh, is, is more involved than he realises and then have, has nine minutes, 47 seconds to figure out what's going on. And the film is then told in those nine minute, 47 second segments. Okay. So uh, when did the first hit your desk? Because you didn't write this. No, it, it hit my desk about uh, two years ago. A writer called Simon Lewis that I had met had written a, a really good script called Tiger House, um, which I wanted to option, which is now being made by another director called Tom Daly. Mm. And um, I, I tried to option Tiger House, and just when we were in the middle of the option, a big production company came in, swooped in, and took it away. <laughs> and I was really annoyed about that. And yeah. uh, so I spoke to Simon and he said, look, I've got a whole bunch of other ideas. And he, he started pitching me his ideas and uh, they were all right. And then he said, I've got this idea called The Anomaly. And he told me the first segment. And I said, OK, I want that one. I, I, s I said, I want that one. He said, well, I'm kind of only halfway. I said, no, I don't care. I like the sound of it. I want that one. <laughs> in, in the hope that he would deliver what I liked. And he did. So did he give you the script in, in nine minute, 47 second long chunks? Every now and again, just a new bit and then a new bit. It took him that long to write it, but in, in, <laughs> in weeks, though, in weeks. Um, no, but yeah, he, s he sent it, and I, I just really liked it because I, I really felt that it was a high concept, but something you could do, it was contained, so you could do it for a lower budget, which, you know, uh, over here, I don't get, like, 200 million and all sorts of nonsense things. It was probably, this film probably cost less than the catering budget on some of those other big films, you know? <laughs> like Star Trek in the Darkness, for example. Yeah. Maybe. Which um, I also didn't write. <laughs> so you, you're, uh, you hear this, uh, this pitch, 
what was it about? Was it the uh, the uh, the idea of these this this chunks of nine minute forty seven seconds? Was it the sci fi twist? Was it something that you could play as well? Um, it was it was more about the the sci fi twist or on something that we could do out of the UK, but had ambition. You know, I, I always try to make films that kind of have ambition and, and show that you can do more than you can achieve more than people will tell you you can and mm. for me that was part of the appeal of this film because it, it shouldn't that that you saw in the trailer really should not be possible for the amount of money that we had to make the movie mm. but when you kind of force someone to make films at a low budget eventually they come proficient at it you mm. know and so having to make stuff like kiddothood and adulthood at lower budgets, we we learn how to make films at lower budgets. And I, I don't need to spend two hundred million, you know, because we can make a film that is, you know, is two hundred times less the cost, but not two hundred times less the quality. And mm. that, that's the point. So um, it's interesting. After Kiddlehood, uh, which you wrote, and Adulthood, which you wrote and directed, um, it's been interesting. You've really seemed to have made a purposeful leap into commercial British filmmaking. Do you think there's enough? commercial British filmmaking in this country these days and how difficult is it to, to make commercial movies here? Um, I don't think there's enough commercial British filmmaking enough, but, and it is very, very difficult to, to make. Um, m moving away from those films, it was a conscious choice, not because I don't love them and not because I wouldn't necessarily do it again. It was because having done two of those, it was um, firstly to make sure that I wasn't being stuck in a box of like he does that and secondly to make sure that the people that the film was represented weren't necessarily being represented in a way that actually wasn't fair like the films were in my opinion positive messages within a negative environment the first film was saying if you behave this way you can die so you need to not behave this way that's the first film yeah. the second film was saying as he did at the end of the film is you can walk away from that life. You don't have to, you know, and at the end, Sam walks away. And so many people say, why did he walk away, bruv? He should have took him out. I'm like, no, he walked away because that's, that's the message. You can walk away from the bad things and you can start again. But at the same time, people that didn't see the message in those films saw them as negative movies. And thus, I didn't think doing a third one at the time would have been good for anyone. Absolutely, but uh, this is your third film as director. You see, you did uh, Adulthood in 4321. Mm. It's been about three, four years now since that movie. Yeah. Uh, so were you looking purposefully to get back on the directing horse, so to speak? Yeah, 100%. I was looking for something something new to direct. Um, I felt like, obviously, it had been a while. Um, 4321 was a, a great experience uh, making the film and then a not-so-great experience with some of the people, and not the actors, some of the people behind the scenes that, that I ended up working with. And so it kind of was, I was kind of like, well, I, I just need to sort of recover from that. And then after doing a few, quite a few acting jobs and uh, writing a few things like Fast Girls and Stories 24 and various other things and being in films like Centurion and, and Star Trek, um, I, I thought, you know, actually I need to make sure that I, I get back in the directing chair because that's what I love as well and that's what I want to do. And you know, I, I have like the next, I know what the next five things I want to do are. Whether they will happen or not is a different story because the industry is the industry. But um, of the next five things I want to do, there's only one that I'm in. And the other mm. the other four, I, I just, I fell in love with the scripts and I want to direct those as well. 
But uh, but you are in this. You're the you're the uh, lead in role this one. In this yeah, one. in this one. Uh, how does Noel Clark, the actor, uh, get a role from Noel Clark, the director? Do you have to audition for yourself? How, <laughs> how do you do it? Yeah, I'm kind of like, how's this? That was shit, but that was shit. But you can still do the job. I'll hire you anyway. What's your thing? Mainly because <laughs> you s- mainly because you sleep with me. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, for me, this film I think is important not just because obviously I'm playing that role, but I feel like it, you know people people don't people look at films that don't necessarily understand how they work. So there are actors who can finance projects. And there are actors who can't finance projects. That's the be all and end all of it. Now, if you're a big enough director or a good enough director, or there's a new project, you can have a, uh, a film with unknown people, and it might get made, and then they become stars, etc. But essentially, a film like this, there's people that can finance it, and there's people that can't. So, you have people that can finance this movie at uh, a bigger budget, like your Idris's and your Chiwetel and David Oyelowo, uh, but the budget was never going to be big enough for them. So yeah, immediately okay. they're out. Okay. Then you have people that some people think can finance projects, but actually, because I work in producing and do it, I know you have a bunch of actors that would love to do this movie. They would give anything to do this movie and they would be great for it, but they can't finance any project. Hmm. And if you put them in it, the budget drops really low where you're not, it's po- impossible to make it or you just, they're not financeable. And then there's a s- very small category with a few people um, and in, in my persuasion of black actors, not many hmm. that actually can finance a project, i.e. myself um, and uh, it doesn't have to be crazy budget. And also, I fall into that category of I will do it and I will take all the physical pain. I'll put myself, I will work six days a week for six weeks and then still go in and do fight rehearsals on my day off. And I won't call my agent moaning about it. I won't say, <laughs> oh, I got, bru- I got bruised in the fight scene. Can I get a day off? Uh, and so I know I'm going to do that. Yeah. And I know a director doesn't have to worry about, as a director, I don't have to worry about the actor hurting his shoulder and then be like trying to get a day off or his agent complaining. I know I'm going to put myself through that. And so so that was one of the reasons that I did it. And also for me, you know, uh, you know, and I'm not a, a militant guy, but also for me, if I had not done this role, no black actor would have got this role. If this had been cast by someone else and it fell on the desk, it would never have gone to a black actor. And I feel like, there's no mention in the script of anyone being black, white, or anything. I don't cast my films like that. Mm. But I feel like the very fact there's a movie where the lead guy is black and it's not mentioned at all yeah. and it's just is important because that doesn't happen enough. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so who do you play in this one? Can you talk about your character? Yeah, I play um, Ryan Reeves, who is the ex-soldier that um, uh, is is uh, being... <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> yeah, I play Ryan Reeve, the ex-soldier that wakes up in the situation he, he finds himself in and is living his, his life through the nine-minute, 47-second segments. Absolutely. I think you've just nicely set up the first clip, which is the beginning of the movie. So we'll just plunge you guys straight into it. It's quite a long clip. It's about three minutes long, but it really sets up the movie. So roll the clip. <laughs> Please help me. They killed my mum. Red masks. The men in red masks. Have you been kidnapped too? Yeah, I think so. Please. Please, untie me. Okay, okay. They shot her. Men in red masks came to our house and shot her. I'm sorry to say. What's, what's your name? Alex. Okay, Alex. Being very brave. I need you to be brave for a little bit longer, okay? 
gonna go and get some help. So um, where was I shot all that? Because that was uh, not one continuous location. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, obviously we did a bit on the, uh, <coughs> not quite the South Bank, but on, on the bank uh, of London where we had the, like, the futuristic London stuff in. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I forget what cemetery, what cemetery was it? Where was he? I don't know where he's going. It was going. a Highgate, was it? Uh, uh, no, I think Stoke Newington. Stoke Newington, okay. I think okay. Stoke Newington Cemetery, but it's a cemetery that is just like a maze <laughs> with like, gravestones <laughs> everywhere. It's not like... Uniform, so it was really beautiful in a weird kind of yeah. scary way. I like know. the way uh, I love the way it opens up in a in a fan dark claustrophobic, and yeah. then suddenly you open out and you're in the future. What what years it take place in? Do you? Uh, I'm not telling you the date. The date <laughs> is the date is in there. Uh, 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 only it, it, the date appears one time uh -huh. in a certain spot, which I won't say. And other than that, <laughs> we don't we don't say when it is. It's not too f it's not too far in the future, but it it's a f it's definitely a few years and. I guess the thought was going too far would really show that we it would be something we couldn't afford, mm. but going to a place where cars could still be driving, but you know phones and stuff were just a little bit more advanced, mm. you know, was uh, was it was possible for the money we had. So and those cool buildings that we had in London, I thought you know in the amount of time they could be built, and so that's what we went with. Yeah, the architects have clearly been busy. Uh, Boris has been granting planning permission <laughs> to a few people <laughs> yeah. in the in the interim. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a skyscraper. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but there's a skyscraper that actually revolves. Yeah, and that's yeah. your idea, was it? It was my idea. I really, 
I really sort of wanted some really cool buildings and I love the thought of having an apartment that you can see the whole of people go, what's your view? You go, everything. Because it just <laughs> rotates. And so I said, look, make one of these ones rotate. And they did this really beautiful one that rotates. And it, I, I love it. Every time I see that shot, I kind of get drawn to that one. Just yeah. slowly spinning and thinking, how cool would it be to actually live in there? Yeah. Of your motion sickness, maybe not so good. But yeah, but I guess, it would okay. it, I guess it would rotate quite slowly, though. <laughs> yeah, Do you know possibly. what I mean? <laughs> Unless it gets broken one day and just starts <laughs> Just stops, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Spins off into the Thames. <laughs> um, as a director, though, is it fun to come up with stuff like that? And there's, there's really, really cool guns in the movie. There's cool phones as well. Is it cool to micromanage all that sort of stuff? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I love getting involved in all that stuff. And I mean, th there isn't... Like there isn't a bow tie or a sock that a character wears that I'm not involved with. I, I make sure that I make sure that I know what everyone's wearing and have a reason for them wearing it and, and stuff like that. And it, it, I, I really I really love it. You know, directing's like having a bag of chips on a beach and seagulls just <laughs> coming and like pecking <laughs> and taking stuff. But at the same time, as long as you can kind of control it, it it's great. So I love it. Yeah. And the last time we spoke was at the uh, Edinburgh Film Festival, and you talked about how you got the screenwriting and basically went to a screenwriting uh, uh, to a bookstore picked out 20 screenplays, studied them, and yeah. dissected them, essentially. Uh, did you do the same as a director? Who who your influence as a director, and how do you go about um, finding your style? I don't even know if I found my style yet. I wouldn't say I have. I definitely like... I do like steady cam stuff. I do like long shots and trying to be clever, but I, I definitely don't know if I found my style, and I think that's possibly because I jump genres so much as well that there isn't you know, one style that I might use for something isn't necessarily right for another, even if I have a base style. Um, directing, yeah, with directing, you know, I was an actor for a, a long time, obviously, and so being on set uh, a lot of the time was something that enabled me to really kind of watch and learn from directors. And then before we, obviously with Kid Hood, I was there every day. Like, the director had me there every day next to him because he wasn't from that world, he's a good friend of mine, but he wasn't from that world, so he kind of was like, I need you here every day with me. And so I sat with him every day and I watched and I learned and I would suggest things and he would go, okay, great. And he, he would listen, he's great, like I love the guy. And um, we still talk now. And then with adulthood, the film council made you, because I'd never directed a feature, they were like, right, before you do this, and they lock this in the vault, they have this in the vault and nobody ever sees it. But a lot of the films they do before, if it's a new director, before they let you do it, you have to do a test shoot. You have to actually do a test shoot and you kind of, they go, right, here's the money for one day's filming. You're going to shoot a short film or two scenes from your film. And at the end of the day, you're, then you're going to go to the edit. You're going to do it. You're going to do all the stuff you would do on a feature, but like in this very small scale. And if you, and you're going to write a report about how you found it, the mistakes you made or what mistakes you, and it doesn't matter if you make mistakes, if you know you made the mistakes and you can write a report and like as long as you showed initiative and that yeah. you were learning and that you understood if you made a mistake, and so um, I've been on a few jobs where people have failed those things, but for luckily, um, and you cast it properly, and I cast, I cast the, some of the guys that were, and I passed it. And once you pass it, that's when they go, right, we're going to make the movie, and they lock it away, and you never see it. I've never seen it since. Yeah. Um, but it's there somewhere. My God, so you, you rock up for your first day on, on adulthood, and is there, a, is there a director going through your head? Is there a particular, or do you basically just what go... What was going I'm through my mind, apart yeah. from my ass? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know... Um, I think back then, uh, with adulthood, I was probably too naive and I was young and naive, and, and but also with the naivety, there was a certain brashness that I didn't really, I did understand what I was doing, but I didn't understand the pressure that it entailed. So I wasn't 
there was no fear. Like there was no fear at all. Mm. I was like, right, yeah, we're gonna do this. We have got six weeks to do this. We're gonna do it. There's a there's a every film well, most films get insurance. So a guy will come and insure your film, and they they guarantee to the finances that the film will complete and that you'll have money uh, that that you can actually complete the film. And they never insure director actors. They never do it because mm. if you insure an actor who's directing and then they get sick or something happens, not only do you lose your, your actor, but you lose the director. So this guy had never done it, and he came down to meet me. He says, look, I don't insure actor-directors. I'm just letting you know, so let me hear what you've got to say. How do you propose to do this movie, adulthood? And I said, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And he said, that's, that's what you've got to say. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, People have told me I can't do things, and I'm going to do it. And he, he said that he didn't know why he did it, but he signed off on me doing it, because he thought, well, if he doesn't do it, we're, we've insured it anywhere, we'll take over, blah, blah, blah. And he signed off on me doing it, and we did it. He, the same guy, last year, had to sign off the anomaly. <laughs> and he's a great guy, like, I love him to bits. And he said to me, he says, right, you know you're the only actor-director that I bond, you know? I said, yeah, I know, and I, I remember. And he just said, and he recounted, I remember when you said to me, I'm just gonna do it. And I said, oh, I did it, didn't I? He said, yeah, and that's the only reason I'm signing this one off. <laughs> and, and he signed it off again. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm glad he did. He nearly, I tell you what, though, I did get a few injuries on this that did uh, did worry me for a little bit, and yeah. he might have had to come in, but luckily we <laughs> got through it. So uh, as a director on this one, do you still largely operate by instinct, or do you, because their, their fight sequences in here are, are very complex and very considered, so clearly those, you're not winging it there, but do you have a sense of, you know, are you, is there any director that influences you when you're coming to the dialogue scenes or to other scenes? With dialogue, I mean, I love Kevin Smith, Tarantino, um, you know, dialogue-wise, but, I mean, it's a different type of film. It's not something that, that sort of warrants that kind of flashy, non-driving-the-story-forward non dialogue. And um, But I'm influenced by too many people to kind of... I'm almost influenced by too many to kind of take bits. Um, definitely the raid influenced a little bit of the fights in this, um, but... I'm not so instinctual anymore, particularly I'm more instinctual if, if I'm not in the film or I'm in a very small role like in 431. With a film like this where you're in it a lot, I prepare like unbelievably. I have like mm. bird's eye view, shot plans. Mm. On top of that, I have shot lists. On top of that, I have storyboards. On top of that, the DOP, like the main cameraman and the first assistant director, they're all familiar with everything, like 100%. Every day on set, the storyboards go up, and when we do something, we cross it off. If you have an actor that changes stuff, you you adapt. If you have a location that suddenly warrants you doing something different, you adapt. But generally, yeah. generally, the film is plotted and planned out, and so any member of crew can go up to the boards and go, "What we're doing? That is what we're doing." Wow. And 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 so it's it's meticulously planned out. Yeah. And the fight scenes were the same in this movie. I wanted to do something very different. Um, that doesn't really get done a lot. I don't think it's ever been done in the UK where you barely, if ever, cut the camera. Mm. So a lot of the fights are literally done in one shot where we don't cut, which makes them sometimes a bit messy. But uh, to be frank, they're awesome because you're not just going cut, 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 cut. You're actually watching these two people or three people or four people actually fight. So they're, they're kind of choreographed like a dance move. Um, and with those, the same, meticulously planned. Like the big fight in the corridor, which you guys will see when you see the movie, hopefully, is... Is there's I fight like three people. The set was built around the plans of the fight. Usually you find the location and then you go, okay, great, how are we going to make the fight work? No, I planned the fight. I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go here. We're going to go through a door, over the top, over this beam, down and around like that. 
and they all got it, and the set was built around the plan for the fight. So regardless of what else happened in the movie, we knew that when we got to the fight, the corridor was wide enough, the door was in the right place, the beam was in the right place, the camera couldn't do the moves and come over. There is a sneaky cut over the top beam <laughs> because you couldn't, we couldn't, we didn't have a camera head that could go from there to there sure. quick, quick enough. Okay. So there was sort of a cut there. But generally, we shot all the fights in like one move and uh, they were meticulously planned. And uh, the guy you fight most often in the film is probably Ian Summerholder. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about his character? And then we have, a, we have a, I think, your first fight sequence. In the yeah, movie. great. Ian, Ian Summerholder's character is uh, sort of the, the person that's... I wake up uh, around a lot of the time and he kind of has his own agenda with what he wants to do. Um, and the good thing about the character is, is that he doesn't believe he's doing anything wrong. And, and that, for me, was really important because... And that, for me, is is what Ian grabbed onto because there's a lot of things that the character believes in that Ian believes in in real life. Obviously, not the villainy or anything like that. I don't <laughs> want to spoil it. The guy's not necessarily... But essentially, there's a lot of things in terms of saving stuff that Ian yes. really believes in. And uh, I think that's what drew him to the, drew him to the character. And he's, he's amazing in it. He's brilliant. Fantastic. So uh, we have the first fight sequence between Ryan and Harkin, played by Ian Summerholder, and this gives you an idea of the uh, the one-take fight sequences. Take it away. What are you doing to him? Happened again, didn't it? We'll never know. <laughs> well, yeah, it carries on after that as well. <laughs> I mean, on. but yeah, after that glass smashes, that rest of that is just one shot. Okay, so uh, did that hurt? <laughs> By the way, um, it looks like it did. Not well. The, not really. No, not really. I, I kind of, <laughs> since I was a little boy, I've been throwing myself about like that. So <laughs> you kind of, you kind of, you watch a lot of WWE wrestling. You kind of get <laughs> get used to do, taking those bumps. <laughs> uh, how many takes was that? That's take six. Okay. Of. Of six. Of six. Because every that that's the thing. Believe me, you're getting you are getting beat up in those things. Once you get it right, you stop. <laughs> there's, there's, I mean, there's a very minor mistake in that one that I still notice. But once you get it like near ninety five percent, you're like that is it. Okay, so you're not going down the sort of Stanley Kubrick, David Fincher route. Ninety nine <sighs> takes, no, hundred takes. Because like, you, the thing is about the way the way we shoot it, and there's no cutting. When he when he's hitting me here close, he has to be close. So sometimes you're getting caught. When he's getting it in the body, like you can see, that's an impact shot that he takes in slow motion. Mm. It's like we're not going full pelt, mm -hmm. but we're hitting each other. And um, it, it's, you know, sometimes after the case, we're like, whoo, boy. Because there was one <laughs> take we did where he came and he swung and I, I felt on my lip like that. Or I caught him as well. And I, after I was like, dude, you're right. He's like, yeah. He's like, whoo. That was a <laughs> centimeter away from taking my teeth out. So like we literally were trying to make it look as real as possible. Yeah. 
um, in in that kind of in that kind of way. And so, uh, the frustrating thing is when you get right to the end and make a mistake, or seventy five percent of the way through, mm. and you make a mistake. I mean, we were like, if you could see us, the rushes of that, like the outtakes, we're like, fuck, damn it, damn it, right, let's go again, keep rolling, and we'd just go again because it's so frustrating. But then when you get one that's like ninety five percent, and you sit back and you're sweating, and everyone watches it back, and you go, dude. There's that minor little thing there, but no one's going to notice that. Great, let's take that, let's move on. And <laughs> that, that was what we did. <laughs> so, of course, you're both actors, so you're both probably going, not the face, not the face. This is my fortune, honestly. Well, I think him more than me, obviously, because <laughs> like, he's a lot better looking than I am. And I think it's like, also one of those things with someone like him, you know, American actor, star, I didn't want to hit him in the face. You're kind of yeah. like, can you imagine the agent on the phone to you if you knocked <laughs> Ian some older tooth out or something like that? Um, but he was great, and like I said, he's like I needed actors that were not gonna moan, that weren't gonna be like, oh, I'm bruised or I'm aching or this or that or calling the rages moaning. And Ian, Ian, you know, he was he was up for it. Like when I explained I was gonna do the stuff in one take and that we would have to be really close, he was up for it. And for someone who's so pretty as well, like you know, some people would think, oh, pretty boy, pretty boy, but he he's a dude, man, and mm. you know, he he was great. And you cast some uh, some genuine fighters as well, didn't you? And nearly paid the price. Yeah, I mean, so with the fight scenes in the film, I didn't want to just again cast actors or, or even stuntmen that you know, oh, I got to call my union or blah blah blah. So I had fighters like again in the corridor fight. One of the guys is, was a five-time world kickboxing champion. I have other MMA fighters. I have Michael Bisping, who's a UFC fighter, and these are the guys I fought because I knew if I hit them by accident, that's their day job, right? They can take a hit. Um, and so, so that's what we did. Um, and in one of the fights, um, in the uh, the fight after that one, actually, uh, on in take three, which was the last take and the take we actually used in the film, the very last punch before we cut the camera, we had to cut the camera, was Michael Bisping swinging and catching me square in the mouth and knocking me down. Like this is a UFC fighter, like championship contender, yeah. and he just swings like the m most vicious swing. He's like that, and he comes round and he just caught me, bang, and I just went down. And then in the film, you see, we literally, after he hits me, that's we have to cut to go to a different angle. Luckily, we got the whole fight. Because in the slow-mo, when, the, the when you watch the rushes, like the, the footage, he goes, hits me, and then goes, oh, no, <laughs> no, medic, medic. So li literally, when he connects, we, we cut the camera. So did the lights go out for you? Were you out cold? Were you okay? No, I wasn't out cold, which I, I tease him about this because he's a UFC fighter and I'm <laughs> like, dude, you didn't even knock me out. So hopefully he doesn't take, a, you know, take another chance. Um, but no, I was definitely down. And this is when I got really scared because like my jaw was just like, whew, yeah. like in pain. And yeah. then I thought, all I was thinking about, I didn't care about them. All I thought about is if the jaw's broken and that finance guy comes to me and said, See, this is why I don't bond that to directors. I'd be like, I would never live it down. So I was hoping, and it, luckily it wasn't broken, but I was on like soup for four days because I couldn't close my back teeth. So I couldn't chew chewing gum, I couldn't eat because actually you go, oh, give me a chewing gum and you put it in and be like, <laughs> and you couldn't actually, you couldn't chew it. It just falls out. Yeah, literally, because <laughs> your teeth weren't closed and you're like, that's so weird. Teeth wouldn't close. And then after about nice. a week, it, it went back to normal. Fantastic. Uh, we have one more clip now before you guys can ask Noel a question. Uh, so this one introduces another new character. It's uh, Alexis Knapp. Can you set up that character? Yeah, Alexis Knapp is a, a character that uh, Ryan comes across along along his way in a story. I won't tell you how. It's uh, quite interesting. Um, and uh, she, you're not really sure which side she's on or what she's what she's up to. And so uh, this is 
not her introduction in the movie, but this is her reintroduction to my character. Absolutely. Roll the clip. Please. Please. Tell me we were in New York. Where did you think you were? Now that wasn't quite the clip you thought it was going to be. No, slightly different, but <laughs> slightly uh, different. Yeah, you know. but uh, that was New York. How long did you film there? We were in New York for two days. Wow, two days. Okay. Yeah, the f <laughs> the film set there a lot more than we were there, but we were actually there for two days. So one day flying in, unload the equipment. <laughs> one day to film. Well, and then out again. four, four <laughs> days if you put it like that. Yeah, <laughs> okay, one day right, fly okay. in, two days shoot, <laughs> and then I fly out. Yeah. So Times Square. How difficult is it to film in Times Square? It was actually quite easy. I mean, once you get permission, you know, we, we got permission under the obviously low budget and small production uh, license thing. So you get permission, you're there properly, but it's under the agreement that you're not going to be having cranes or sticks. You can't have sticks. You can be on like steady cam, excuse me, steady cam or handheld. Um, and as long as you can do that, you can get the permissions, you know, and then obviously the big films, they get the real mm. lockdown. Um, but people were allowed to, to keep keep walking around now my thing was to make sure that continuity didn't look crazy with different people every time we changed the camera i had about six extras that had like either green or yellow tops that would kind of draw your eye okay. and they were consistently in every shot that the people that that we walked in on on both sides or you know so that if suddenly you're looking at michael's shot and then well, how come the old man was there then the other old man's not there and but you'd always see the girl in a yellow top, so you kind of were fooled. Oh, it. Yeah, you were yeah. fooled into thinking that it was completely done at the same time, and it was pretty easy to shoot there. We were all good um, until after about an hour in, uh, Doctor Who fans started going, oh, <laughs> that, "Aren't you that guy from Doctor Who?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 great." And then Michael Bisping, weirdly, a UFC fighter, yeah. you know, there was a big UFC poster in the background, and people started recognizing him. And so it started getting pretty crowded. Uh -huh. And I think Alexis Knapp, who's actually an American actress and star in Pitch Perfect, I think she was getting quite annoyed that <laughs> this weird English guy she'd never heard of and some fighter were getting all this attention. And she wasn't. Um, and then cr lots of crowds started turning up. And then the film people turned up and said, guys, we thought this was a low-budget um, 
no crowd, you know, you wouldn't be attracting attention. And we're like, yeah, sorry about that. And by this point, there was like hundreds of people. And they were like, you guys got half an hour and you got to get out. But luckily, we were on like our last shot. So we just did the last shot and uh, we got out. Oh, my God. Nice one. Uh, okay. If you have any questions now for Noel, please put your hands up. We have Roby microphones going around. This gentleman here. And then there's a gentleman over here. At the two gentlemen at the back. Um, well, thanks for sharing all this, and you're a big inspiration to me, man. Like, Thank there's not you. many, just in the in the business, being actors and directors. That's a really unique position. But what I want to know is how you've alluded to it a little bit earlier. But what was the preparation for a film like this, knowing that you're going to have a starring role and you're going to be directing? Um, yeah, well, the preparation was was intense, and like I said, it it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't a short it wasn't a short prep. Period. So before every film, for guys that don't know, there's a there's a period called prep. It's where you, you get everything locked down, all your locations, blah, 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 blah. There's also pre-prep, which is an unofficial kind of prep where you start doing stuff. But I started way before that. Like, I made sure that once I read the script and once I knew we were going, um, you can't plan for everything. But, like, if you're, if you're in a room, you're in a room, right, in the script. If you're in a room, you're in a room. So you can pre-plan. Like, I, I had bird's eye view ideas. I want the camera here. I want this here. Like, the fight moves, maybe not the actual punches and kicks, but the moves of the fight, where we were going left towards that wall, right. I planned all of that stuff out completely. Like it was all pre-planned. And so the best thing to do is to get your first assistant director really early and your, your DOP or your DOP and main cameraman if they're two different people. If your operator is your DOP as well, then that person. And you guys need to get together from very early, make sure you're on the same page, you understand each other. So that if you, if worst case scenario, if you're directing and you suddenly get struck by lightning, and all you can do is remember lines and act, they know everything that's happening. They know everything that is happening 99%. Like I said, you can get an actor who suddenly goes, actually, I don't want to sit here, I want to stand at the back over there. And you might just be like, I shouldn't have hired this guy. And then <laughs> you're kind of like thinking, how, how do we change stuff? But then you have to adapt and you have to change stuff. But generally, if that doesn't happen, or even if it does, you just have to be pre like well prepared. So that for me was was how I did it and you know I learned that from from an early age um probably started doing that on 4321 more so than adulthood adulthood I had shot lists like shot lists and blah 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 blah, blah. um no storyboards and stuff like that and storyboards aren't necessarily like essential but you need to have a rough idea of what you're doing but on anomaly I had everything pre-planned bird's eye view shot lists and storyboards and DOP and first assistant who knew everything that I knew, you know, and, and that, that is the key. Pre you can never prep enough, really. Yeah, okay, bro. And, um, you know, just going back to the idea of being a director and an actor as well, how do you assess when you're in the scene as an actor, how do you, as a director, how do you assess the quality of that performance? I think I read once that George Clooney, the first time he directed himself as an actor, he would have someone who would kind of yeah. look at the performance. He would 100%, be 100%. Yeah. With, with uh, firstly, um, Acting, directing, when I'm in a scene, if I'm not on camera, I'm paying attention to the other actors. They're still getting the performance. They're still getting the performance they need to, to say their lines properly, but I'm logging everything they're doing so that at the end I can tell them. But if I'm on screen, um, there's, there's always someone. There's always someone close in the team, whether it's the DOP um, who knows actors or whether it's someone that you've worked with, like an acting coach or... On adulthood, it was Brian Tafano who shot Quadrophenia and shot loads of films, and he shot Kidhood and Adulthood. So he was there, and I was like, Brian, anytime you see something where I'm like, hi, my name's Sam, and I'm like posing, like, you know, hair blowing in the wind, big chin, I said, you just make sure you tell me 
so that it, it you know, and he would, he would just go, great, great guys, and he'd be like, no, can I have a word? And he'd pull me aside and be like, I think you might want to try that one again, <laughs> or or or, wh- or whatever, or your eye was flicking, or you were twitching, or yeah. something like that, and then I would do it again. So 100% all the time, never think that um, if you're acting, directing, that just because you know the material, you are not, you know enough to just do it. Always have someone that can keep you grounded and put you in your place. And if you go, man, that was brilliant, great guy, move on. They go, yeah, bro, you need to do that again. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. You need to have that person. So uh, make sure it's someone you trust and, and have them there. Oh man, I need someone like that in my life. I was <laughs> just, think, I was yeah. just thinking <laughs> that, dude. Like, you know, <laughs> don't ask that question. <laughs> don't wear low shoes. Yeah, Chris, don't <laughs> ask that question, bro. <laughs> yeah, do, man. Uh, yes, please. There's two gentlemen are here at the back, please, sir. Hi. Uh, thanks for Hello. coming. Thanks um, for having me. Well, <laughs> coming to see me. Yeah. Um, what would you say was the kind of the key knowledge that got you from acting into then actually making films? Was were you trained? Was it a kind of on the job? And how did you seek the knowledge out um, to enable you to actually do the job? Um, well, with acting is what I always wanted to do, and then in media studies uh, with uh, one of my co-producers over there who actually went to college with me and school. We uh, we had this teacher called Mr. Jones who weirdly started teaching us, bringing in lots of indie American films like Pulp Fiction and Go and Clerks and stuff like that. And that really got me into filmmaking. I was like, wow, I, I didn't know you could just say what you want and do what you want in films. And those were the films that really wanted to, um, wanted made me want to uh, get into filmmaking. In ter- Sorry, what was the last bit of the question again? You said... Um, yes, I mean, how did you go about yeah, the, the knowledge, knowledge yeah. you didn't have? How did um, you go about getting it? So, f- obviously, as an actor, being on set a lot of the time, like I said earlier, I watched a lot and uh, and did stuff like that. Um, and Chris made reference to it earlier when I was first starting to write properly, because I always wrote. I went and bought like a bunch of screenplays and just sat down in my room and dissected them and learned about beats and stuff like that. And it doesn't mean I always get it right. Like, still get it wrong, you know, sometimes, because sometimes you just want to write something different. But there are kind of rules. Um, but with directing, I would say apart from the experience of acting and being on set, every single film that I watch, every single DVD or Blu-ray that I buy, I watch every single feature on that disc. Like, I don't just watch the film. Like, I watch a film four times if they have four commentaries. I watch the director's commentary, the composer's commentary, the cast commentary. I watch every, the making of, I watch every single thing on all those films. And sometimes it means the film takes you a week as opposed to, I've watched two hours of this. But you'll be surprised what you learn in those things because they really tell you how they do shots they really tell you how they've achieved things for the budget and 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 it's a real i can't it's almost as good as sitting in any university and having someone lecture you you're watching actual filmmakers doing comedy and say guys how we achieved this is actually we what we did was we had something on the roof on a rope and we dropped that you're like wow okay (laughs) i thought it was a lot more technical than that but you can learn so much Uh, i recently watched the raid 2 um, again with my co-producer and we came out of the, the screening and everyone was talking about the fights blah, 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 and we found Gareth because Gareth was there and everyone was like, fights, fights, fights and I waited and waited and I said, dude, I wanted to ask you something. He was like, the fights? I said, no. There's one shot you did when you're on the motorbike and you kind of went from one car to the other, into the car, around the back, came out the other side and I said, how did you do that shot? Because that's all I'm concerned about. I don't care about the fights. I've seen fights all the time and he said, all right, I tell you, and he told me that he even had a cameraman dressed up as a car seat, like in disguise. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not even lying. He said one of, the di- one of the camera guys was dressed up like a car seat and in position, 
and they moved the camera across and it went through and you couldn't tell because he was camouflaged and he grabs it and puts it through. And I was like, okay. And that's all I was concerned about because it was such an amazing shot. And it's not even in a particularly memorable sequence. It's in like a motorbike chase. But it's just one moment when I was like, but you know, watching stuff like that and learning things like that is, is really how, how you get the knowledge if you don't have the practical experience of being an actor as well. And so that plus being an actor and watching directors, I guess, is where kind of I got my knowledge. And I still, I'm still learning. I by no means think I'm perfect. Even in that last clip, there's one, there's one cut in there that really doesn't work and I had to disguise it with a bit of VFX. Um, and that was just because that was just because we just couldn't get the last bit of footage we needed. So there's one little sneaky cut in that last running section mm. in New York there. Um, and if I hadn't put a bit of VFX on there, it would be so apparent. And anyone who's paying attention will still see it. But So I'm still learning too, you know, and I, I feel like you only learn by trial and error. You only, you, you improve each time, you know, and, uh, and you know, if people look at this compared to previous films, they'll see the, the development and hopefully it can only get better. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, please, this gentleman right beside you. Um, hi. Hello. I don't know if I need a mic. My, my voice is really strong. Yeah, um, anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry White. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, I wanted to find out, um, with Anomaly, what did you find most hard about it? Um, and how did you get over it? <clears throat> the most difficult thing with Anomaly was obviously stretching the budget, stretching the budget to the place where, I mean, because... If you look at that, if I, I'm not going to tell you the budget, but if I told you the budget, you would not believe the budget we achieved, what we achieved with that budget. And so that was the hardest thing, making sure we knew where to put the money, making sure we knew where the VFX spend was going to be, making sure we knew the points where we really could sp splash out and the points where we had to hold back. And, and, and so that, that was a real learning experience and a real, a real difficult thing, but something that, again, is invaluable. Once you... One, now I know how to make a film at that level, look like that for that level, then I can do it. So if I had doubled the budget, then whew, you know what I mean? But it's not as much as people think it is. Okay, we've got time for a couple more. There's a, there's a guy here, please. Hi, Noel. Hello. Um, you said in one of your interviews that for every idea which succeeds, you have 20 which fail. Yeah. How do you pick yourself up and keep going after those setbacks? Um, well... Firstly, you don't have a choice. I've been doing this so long now that I'm not sure I can do anything else. Um, but it, it, it really comes down to work rate and and determination. I mean, and you're, you're right. Every script that gets made, every film that our company gets made, um, there's probably 10 or 15 that haven't been made. So every script I write that gets made, there's five, six, seven that just sitting on my laptop some of them weirdly come back like the the time might not be right or you haven't got the right actor or it just was before its time or it was it was a period piece but the period was too near so they didn't want to make it and then all of a sudden five years later they go actually we're going to start making films like that and you're like oh i got a new one <laughs> you know <laughs> but uh, but it, 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 it the word you're going to hear most in this job is no that's all you're going to get that's the as an actor, as a, as a writer, director, the word you will hear the most is no. If you can handle rejection and you can get up from that, then, and you can put the work in, then, then that's all you need. There's no right or wrong answer. Uh, the, the, the real point is that you have to be able to deal with rejection. If you can't, then you need to quit now because that's what you're going to hear the most. But then, of course, when you get one, there's nothing better than 
than getting one. But it's uh, it's a, it is literally it's not a how you pick yourself up. It's just it's just pick yourself up and keep going. Because when you start thinking about man, I got you, you, other people are just doing it, so you just have to do it. Cool. Cheers, man. You're not gonna quit, are you? Uh, no. Keep no, going. No, Absolutely don't quit, not. man. Keep going. Fight the good fight. Uh, there's a gentleman over here. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to say first off, I think uh, some of the clips are really awesome, and uh, I'm into acting myself. And I was just wanted to ask you, as an actor and director, what advice would you give to like other young actors out there that want to also go into different parts of filmmaking? Probably the same advice that I just gave this gentleman over here. Like the the profession is very difficult. It's so difficult, and it's very competitive. Uh, and the word you're going to hear the most is no. That's that is what you're going to hear 90%. Even now, like uh, if I audition for stuff, uh, you know, you maybe get one out of every five to ten, and that's because the level I'm at is 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 different now. When I first started, I was at that ratio, but I was going for whatever sorts of jobs, and then I started getting to the bigger leagues. But then with the bigger leads, they get a film come out immediately. It's going to Idris or Chewy or someone like that. And if none of them are doing it, then it starts filtering down. And there's a bunch of American actors. like So I'm still auditioning for stuff, and you don't get... like People say, to me, man, you got Star Trek. How cool is it, man? That's amazing. That's one. If I told you the ones I've been for, if I told you the ones I didn't get, that's why I would never get excited by it, because it's like, well, I'm owed one. The amount that I went... I was owed one the amount that I went for, so do you know what I mean? It's the same advice is just you have to you have to keep going and you have to understand the work rate you're gonna put in. Some people think they can handle it and they cannot handle it. It's an amazing work rate that you have to dedicate yourself to and it means sacrifices, but if you're willing to do that and you can do it, then you'll be fine. Okay, we got time for one last question from this gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, yes, hi Noel. Hello. Um, one of my favourite films is uh, Kid Outhood. And I was just wondering how a film like that came about, because it's quite an unusual film. Yeah, um, kid so Kid Outhood was... Um, so I grew up in that area, and I went to school in that area and college in that area, and um, it was just based... Kid Outhood was just based on me and my friends. And so I started acting, and I kept hearing the word no a lot, like I said, and I kept reading stuff, and I was like, this is... I mean, we talked about this the other day. I'd get... I finally I got an agent because I had a few things and I'd read a job and they go, we've got a great part for you, darling. Um, just go and have a look at um, bank robber number two. And I'd be like, whoa, 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 why, why, why am I bank robber number two? There's a guy called, G no, 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 you have to look at bank robber number two. Oh, okay, so I'd look at it. Then a week later, we got brilliant. We have a, a wonderful part coming for you, darling. It's thief uh, three. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Why am I going to be thief three? Like, I, I, well, this is ridiculous. And I said, don't worry about it. So I'd go do that. Then oh. Darling, we have a wonderful part from you. This time your character has lines and everything. He's got a name. What's his name? Jim. Great. Well, Jim's first line is, open the safe, Bob. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. This, this can't work. So I said, okay, this, this, uh, this is not acceptable. So I thought, but I was always taught by my mother, don't talk about somebody's job unless you tried it. So not only was I fed up with these characters, I was reading these scripts. I was like, this script is a piece of beep. You know how I beat myself there, but this script is a piece of, like, it's, this is shit, right, basically. So... But I thought, actually, how can I say that unless I've tried writing? So then we come back to the screenplay thing where I bought a bunch of screenplays and I started writing. I wrote a couple of scripts. The first one was called Remembering Jesse, which is still on my laptop. Um, the second one was called Society, which is still on my laptop. The third one was called The Knot, which we actually made years later, um, was made a couple of years ago. And the fourth one was called Kidhood. Um, and the word kidhood came from, I was in a thing called metrosexuality and Ricky Beadle Blair once said, oh, I'm a, I'm a 48 year old kid old. And I was like, man, I love that. And so I took the word kidhood um, 
and it was just based on me and my friends in West London, and then it was based on what was happening with kids now, and I just sat down on my arse and I wrote it because I thought that I'd learned enough from screenplays to try. Never thought the film would get made, it was just, you know. And then I showed it to a couple of people in like, this is about the year 2000, and I worked with a guy called Ray Panthaki at a play uh, at the Royal Court, and I showed it to him, and he said, I know a director that might like this. He sent it to the director, Hoods, who loved it, and he said, we're gonna make it. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, bruv, like, yeah, knock yourself out. And we started trying to get it done, and then from 2000 to 2003, it was knocking on every door. Everybody's, everyone in the industry said no, nope. nobody wanted to do it. And then Damien Jones and George Isaac, these producers sort of found some, scribbled together some kind of independent finance. Then in 2003, so three years after I wrote it, 2003, we cast the movie. Um, and then we were gonna film and it was all looking great and then the whole thing collapsed and it was like never gonna happen. And then we found a new bit of finance. So in 2004, now four years after it was initially written, we, we shot the movie independently. Like they cobbled, cobbled together the finance, they shot the movie independently, and we were like, woo, we made a film called Kid Hood that no one's ever gonna watch. And we were, <laughs> and we were right, because nobody wanted to put the film out. So the film then sat on a shelf from 2004 to 2006 while nobody wanted to put the film out because kids didn't speak like that and kids didn't behave like that. And then this little distributor who had only done like weird DVDs like Snoop Dogg's pornos, <laughs> decided, I'm, I'm telling you, they said, oh, we'll put it out. And then in March 2006, six years after it was written, the film came out. And then we know what happened after that. That is how that film happened. Amazing. Um, you've, you've, uh, you've hinted a couple of times, both here and up in Edinburgh, that you may have another Hood movie in you. Do you have any plans, any concrete plans? Um, no, there's no concrete plans at all. I mean, I feel like as, as a person now, like doing those movies, I love those movies. I really love them. And, you know, as a person now who's older, I've got, since I did those, I've got two children now. I have two children. I never had, I didn't have children when I did those films. So I was like, yeah, lad, what are you saying, fam? I'm going to do this. Blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? Now I've got kids. I'm older. I don't speak like that. Well, I, to be honest, I never spoke like that in real life. But, you know, even... But I'm older and I just like, I, I started thinking in my head, what would the characters be doing now? Because mm. I've got, I couldn't even believe I would have children. I've got two little boys and I think now, where would those characters be? So there's definitely something that's sort of bubbling in my head at the minute. Mm. There's no concrete plans. Don't be getting excited and be like, yeah, the hood free <laughs> blood, you get me? Like, don't, none of that. It's just, um, there's no plans, but I just, it, I'm starting to sort of think, 10 years on where, because 2006, so in 2016, that's a 10 year, that's 10 years. Yeah. So I'm starting to think, what what would they be doing? That's what I'm starting to think. So uh, yeah, it's bubbling. Watch this space uh, Watch on this that space. note. Lovely note on which to end. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you, of course. Thank no you, Clark. everyone. Thank you very much.